last few weeks, I've been in uh, the state of Florida, which is a totally different world than in California, uh, to speak at a conference uh, for different research meetings. Um, and the conference I was speaking at is uh, was called the Global Forum for the World Evangelical Association. And hopefully one of these days, I'll get a chance to share in more detail uh, some of the stuff that I, uh, I learned from them and also some of the stuff that I'm sharing. But one thing I wanted to start off with this morning is this idea that you know our experience of being in church together uh, in this church, it really feels like it mirrors similar experiences of many other churches, not only here in the United States, but all around the world, of Christians around the world feeling this tension between um, what we see and experience in our lives and in our world and what we see in the life and the teaching of Jesus and how that is often held in tension with what we observe in the institutional church. You know, how on one hand, we still want to walk with Jesus, but many of us have seen, and perhaps more reluctantly so, we have, many of us have left our former churches because even though we uh, continue to want to walk and believe in Jesus, sometimes it feels like the institutional church doesn't really believe in Jesus anymore in terms of uh, not only what they preach, but also the actions that they engage in. And m many churches such as ours we are coming together very humbly um, in search and in hope of experimenting and exploring what church might actually look like if it were to truly live like Jesus lived and if it were to truly engage the world as Jesus did as well. And that's why it's important for us to be present in each other's lives. It's important for us to be present in the lives of our neighbors, both locally as well as globally. And that's why we're also pressing into these you know, difficult, controversial issues like racism and abuses of power in churches, stuff like mental health and lament. And that's why we're also trying to seek, uh, cultivate this kind of church culture in which we are not afraid to ask tough questions. And we're not afraid to talk about what really needs to be talking about. And it's important to point out that Jesus did all of these things as well. He didn't shy away from the tough conversations um, that many of us might find challenging, that some of us might be offended of with, and that might turn some people off. Um, and it's important for us to know, especially in this year as we're talking about our theme, uh, Jesus as love and body, that we also include this idea that, that talking about difficult things, even, even to the point where people might get offended, that is also another dimension of Jesus as love embodied. For us to be love embodied doesn't necessarily mean that we only talk about things that make everyone happy and make everyone positive. We also need to get into the tough things, even if it runs the risk of people uh, misunderstanding things. And today's passage in John chapter 6 is a great example of just this. You know, the teachings of scripture and of the Christian faith can be very, very difficult. Difficult to understand and also difficult to accept personally as well. And during these times, it's really tempting for churches like ourselves to, uh, to try to please everyone and to avoid difficult conversations out of fear that some might leave the church or maybe even worse, leave the faith. 
And it's this constant uh, tension that we hold even in our church that on one hand we want to be inclusive such that anyone who walks through our doors is welcome to integrate and join our community. And yet at the same time we realize that if we are to grow and mature in our faith, we also have to get into these difficult terrains together. So Jesus too held this tension as well as we will see in John chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to John chapter 6 verse 35 69. We're going to go through about 30 verses of scripture. I'm going to try my best to fit and exegete 30 verses of scripture in about 30 minutes. Let's start with verse 35. It says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. So this passage forms the context for our conversation today. In verse 35, Jesus starts with this emphatic statement about who he is. And he says this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever um, believes in me shall never thirst. And um, this is actually the first of seven I am statements that Jesus says throughout the Gospels. The first one is, I am the bread of life. He also says, I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And this is the first of all of these series of statements throughout the Gospel of John. You see, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 6 of John, you guys remember that story? Uh, it talks about how Jesus fed the 5,000 and how he was given five loaves of bread and two small fish. And uh, remember that story in Sunday school where he divided uh, and, and, and out of a miracle, he fed 5,000 individuals from just five loaves and two fish. When he says this sermon about describing himself as the bread of life, it's fair to assume that a lot of people in the crowd that were part of that 5,000 that were fed they're still with him in this moment during this message because they have been following him all along. And, and it's very understandable. Who, like, if I was there, I would probably be there as well. I mean, it's a great deal. You get to see miracles. You get some really intriguing preaching. And you get free food. Free food is a really appealing kind of thing, right? It's like free dinner and a free show. You just have to follow this guy named Jesus. And understandably, at this point, this is probably several days later. Many of them might be a bit hungry, and they might be secretly kind of hoping that Jesus will pull off another miracle so they can get fed uh, again. And knowing this, this is what Jesus says, right? That, you know, instead of, even though you're looking to me for bread, my response to you is to say that actually I am the bread. I'm not just the provider of bread, but I am the bread. So rather, the bread. So rather than promise to feed the crowds again, Jesus explains that he himself is the sustenance that they, they, they need and they require. 
And of course, he's speaking metaphorically here, not literally. And the meaning of this statement is that Jesus is the very source of life, including the very source of eternal life, such that anyone who comes to him shall not ever hunger or shall not ever thirst again. So Jesus, again, is not the one giving the bread, but he is the bread. And the greatest gift that he offers the world is not by feeding them, but by giving himself to die on the cross for our sins, which is, again, illusion and a foreshadowing of Jesus' death on the cross to redeem humanity. Let's continue with verse 41. It says this. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then he says this again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This makes a lot of sense for us, but to the original crowd, in the original context, quite perplexing, quite confusing, and quite offensive. And understandably, we see here in the narrative that the crowd begins to turn on Jesus. They might have been fans initially, but that dynamic is changing. And it's not surprising because Jesus is not mincing his words here. I suppose that there could have been a thousand different ways, a thousand more gentler ways that Jesus could have communicated what he was trying to communicate at this point. Right? That he was the son of God and that he was the true gift of the world and that he was going to offer eternal life uh, through death on the cross and resurrection. But it almost feels like here Jesus deliberately chose reveal the truth of himself in not only a very direct way, but also perhaps even a very harsh way at the same time. And we have to accept again that this is yet another side of love embodied as Jesus modeled in this world. It's not very warm and fuzzy, but it's love nonetheless because it's what Jesus did. I also want to point out that the narrative here also describes the Jews as beginning to grumble against Jesus. And for those of us who remember the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament and Moses, this actually takes us back to that day, those days of the grumbling of the people of Israel back in the book of Exodus when Moses was trying to lead them throughout the desert. And this connection between what was going on at this moment with what happens with Mo, between Moses and his, the Israelites was actually on Jesus' mind as well. In verse 48, Jesus explains, I am the bread of life. This is where he gets, gets pretty direct. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. So for the Jewish audience of the day, this was a really tough uh, pill to swallow. Because Jesus started off so well. He was drawing 
large crowds, huge crowds, right? his teaching was excellent. He performed miracles, and he gave everyone free food. But it now it feels like he's going off script, right? He's cl now claiming that he's greater than Moses, who is everyone's hero. And more than that, he's actually claiming that he himself is God. Okay, let's continue, and it gets worse. In verse 52, he says this. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, and so whosoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not the bread like the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as, as he taught and learned. Okay, let me say this one last time. I think I know you guys get this idea. There's so many gentler ways of saying what Jesus was trying to say here, right? And, but, but Jesus just isn't going there. Not only is, does it feel like he's going downhill, but here he's actually doubling down, right? Not only is he saying that he himself is the bread of life, He's actually taking this analogy even further to the extent that it's even more controversial and more offensive, right? Now he's saying, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. So the progression starts with him feeding people. Then he talks about eating bread and drinking water. And then he talks about him being the bread. And now he's talking about how everyone needs to feed on his flesh and drink his blood, which for Jews who are taught to never do such a thing with blood, it was quite offensive. Okay. And you have to imagine Jesus was doing this intentionally. You know, from the perspective of us as Christians living after Jesus' death on the resurrection, we, we know that Jesus is speaking figuratively. He's saying that eternal life can only come through him and that this life is only through his death and his resurrection. But again, at the time he spoke these words, no one knew any of this, right? And it really felt like a stumbling block, right? And one of these days, I'd love to ask Jesus, like, why did you drop this stumbling block that you knew would cause so many people to walk away? It almost felt like if you didn't understand that Jesus was going to die on the cross and resurrect from the dead, if you didn't truly know and see Jesus for who he was as the Son of God, then it would take just this insurmountable huge leap of faith to stick along with him at this point. Let's finally finish the passage and read it to its end, starting with verse 16. It says this, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe in who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And there's so much to unpack in here. I realize I do need to land the plane. The way I want to do it is by descending upon a few key closing thoughts. The first thing is that unlike a lot of organized religion, the goal of Jesus' ministry was not to assemble the largest crowd that he could. He didn't care about the size of his following. If he had social media accounts back then, Jesus wouldn't be obsessed with his Twitter account. In fact, in this passage, it's almost as if he's trying to deliberately kind of shed and decrease his following by making his message to the world so harsh and so untenable to the average listener that anyone who doesn't truly believe in him, anyone who doesn't truly see him for who he is as a son of God, would fall away. He was not into the hype at all. And that's exactly what happened. People, including his own disciples, were offended, and scripture says, they no longer walked with him. Scholars suggest that there's a lot of reasons why people walked away from Jesus, and that there are also a lot of motivations why people followed him in the first place. For example, some people talked about, some people perhaps followed Jesus because they were, again, interested in getting fed. Uh, Jesus provided benefits. Jesus provided entertainment. Jesus provided good teaching. Jesus met their needs. For others, perhaps the motivation was more political, that Jesus was validating and fulfilling what they saw as their political ambition to, be, uh, to free the nation of Israel from the rule of Rome. And they wanted Jesus to bring them more power and more freedom. And still others, uh, uh, people followed Jesus because of his miracles, because they marveled at his signs and wonders. But all of these motivations detract us from the true purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. And perhaps that was one of the reasons why Jesus made this message so harsh and offensive, because he wanted to uncover these motivations of, of all the people that were following him and show them for what it was. Which brings us now to the famous exchange between Jesus and his disciple Peter. He said to his 12 disciples, do you want to go away as well? But Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, I have come across many stumbling blocks in my faith over the course of my life. Being hurt and let down by Christians and Christian leaders, being offended by difficult teachings of the faith, especially teachings that have been distorted and used as a form of manipulation and self-interest as well. And I want to validate that hurt because I've seen it happen all too often. And as a Christian leader myself, I have also been the recipient of that kind of hurt and also have been the cause of that hurt as well, both intentionally and unintentionally. And so many of our younger generations are leaving the church, leaving the faith. And frankly, I can kind of understand why. Because people believe in Jesus, but they don't believe that the church is following the way of Jesus anymore especially over in the last six years, there have been several times when it was as if Jesus was asking me that same question that he asked Peter. Do you want to go away as well? 
you know, when I was in a particularly dark season of my life, when I was in Vancouver and Houston, I was really struggling and disillusioned with my own faith. And I was in the middle of this journey of healing and restoration that lasted over a decade. And to this day, if someone were to ask me why I was still a Christian during that time, why I'm still a Christian now, I would still struggle to find an answer to that question. It wasn't necessarily a specific book that I read or this mystical experience that I experienced, although both of those things are helpful. For me, I think it goes down to Peter's response. Lord, where else would I go? I've seen enough with my own eyes to know that you have the words of eternal life and that you are the Holy One of God. So the question I have for you this morning to discuss in small group, a couple people next to you, is the following. Over the course of your spiritual journey, what have been the stumbling blocks to your faith? Was it a teaching? Was it a person? Was it a hurtful experience? Was it an area of unmet need? Was it a religious? It could be lots of different kinds of things. Like what has been some of the stumbling blocks in your faith along your, uh, along your journey? And then secondly, um, if you're comfortable sharing that, you're more than welcome. And secondly, despite all these stumbling blocks, in view of all these stumbling blocks, what has led you to still follow Jesus nonetheless? What is it that leads you to say with Peter, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. I have, and I have come to know that you are still the Holy One of God. Discuss, and then we'll come back. Okay, guys, let's come back together. I'm eavesdropping on many of your conversations, and it feels like you guys can, uh, we can go much longer wish we can go much longer. We also want to be respectful of your time. I encourage you guys to continue in these conversations and uh, after service and in the days to come um, as well. So <clears throat> my encouragement and my prayer to you all this morning is to press into these stumbling blocks, to press into these questions, into these areas of hurt, and to invite Jesus into this process, to Invite Jesus to speak into it, differentiate himself from the brokenness that has caused you pain, so that you too can see Jesus for who he is, as the Son of God, as the bread of life, who has come down from heaven to suffer alongside all of us. You know, one of the lessons that this passage teaches us, I didn't have a chance to talk about this too much, um, is that believing in God is, just, is not just a cognitive or rational kind of thing. John chapter 6 reminds us that believing in God also implies that I come to God relationally. It also means that God has drawn us personally to him. It also means that I, take, I partake in his gifts, that I eat and drink of him in his death and his resurrection, so that we will never hunger and thirst again. And this is an ongoing kind of thing. It's not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing journey that we have to do over and over and over again. And this, my friends, even though it was spoken rather harshly and directly in this chapter here in the book of John, is love embodied. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for um, this message that you have for us this morning. As harsh and as um, direct as it might have been. And Lord, we acknowledge that you hold in your heart and in your hands all the different stumbling blocks to our faith that is represented here in our church. You see it all. You've been holding it all. You've been suffering with us along all this time. And I pray, Lord, that you might make yourself known, that you might uh, accompany us even more closely in our journey towards being more formed into the image of you and in our journey of healing and recovery from a lot of the difficult experiences that have brought us to this day. And Lord, we pray that as that you as the good shepherd and as the bread of life can shepherd us through, that you can give us the, the sustenance that we need, that you can feed us with the truth that we need to carry on persist in our journey with you. In Jesus' name I pray.